Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman, and with me today is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University and New York Times best-selling author of Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, a nonfiction graphic novel. I really can't recommend this book highly enough. It's totally fun and entertaining to read, but it really spares no expense when it comes to making you know careful and precise arguments. So I think that's something that philosophers would appreciate. You won't be surprised to hear, after all that, that Brian Kaplan is here to talk about Open Borders. Brian Kaplan, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. So I thought we could start by talking about what Open Borders is. Um, I actually was a bit confused about this when I first uh, was involved in conversations about this issue with friends of mine, about like what counts as Open Borders. So maybe we could start there. Like, is Open Borders just no country has any customs whatsoever? There's no border control at all? Everybody just walks around crossing international boundaries the same as if they're walking in to get a pizza? Right. So what I would say is that open borders just means that anyone who doesn't belong in jail is free to live and work in any country where they want. That is different from no borders at all. So you might say that U.S. states have no borders at all. You can just cross without it making any difference and no one even asks who you are or asks for your papers. Open borders is totally consistent with having passports and other things like that. As long as they say, hey, you're not on the list of wanted murderers, so go right on in. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, right. So if we just like quickly check that the person's not a terrorist and if they are, we don't let them in, like that could still be open borders, right? Yeah. Well, again, I would say that this is a slogan. And like all slogans, if you could be at 99.9% of the slogan, then that for all practical purposes is just the same as 100. Uh, you would say like, I favor free trade. Well, what about free trade and plutonium? It's like, all right, well, maybe, <laughs> all right, look, the, when I say I favor free trade, you know almost exactly what I mean. There's a few residual issues where you might be unclear. And if you, it really comes up, we could talk about it. But you know, what I find is usually people who are against open borders are against anything remotely like open borders. So it's not like I have a lot of arguments where people are picking on the very fine points at the end, although occasionally it does come up just more for fun than for intellectual substance. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's useful to at least nail it down enough so that the whole conversation doesn't turn into objections or quibbles about those cases. Yeah, yeah. Does an open borders policy have like an extreme opposite? Like what would be the most close that international borders could be? Well, North Korea, I suppose. So yes, you could have a country in principle where you're fully autarkic and no one gets in or out alive. I would think of that as the most extreme case of closed borders. Or again, of course, since normally people are focused just on immigration, it's unusual to find someone who's against tourism, for example, although every now and then you'll have someone who is. But if you just imagine a country where they say, look, we will allow zero immigration for any reason whatsoever, then I'd say that would be the opposite of what I'm talking about. Right. And it seems like in principle, maybe you could kind of logically separate being a totalitarian country from having totally closed borders. If you there was an imaginary country where everybody was completely free to do everything except to leave the country or something. Yeah, one can imagine that. But that's (laughs) highly unusual. Again, of course, immigration policy is almost always or at least pre-COVID about whether to let people in, not whether to let people out. That was typical of the Cold War, where what really distinguished the Eastern Bloc was can't leave, 
not can't come. Yeah. Although now we actually see countries like Australia are making it hard to leave the country for COVID reasons. And only a few hardline people are denouncing this as a major human rights abuse, but sure yeah. seems like it. Yeah. And you, I mean, I never thought about this before, but closing the borders for entering and closing the borders for leaving don't necessarily go together. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a, a lot of countries with really strict immigration policies are totally fine with people leaving. <laughs> right. Well, almost all, in fact, it takes a truly pathological level of evil before countries start saying no one leaves here or you need a permission to leave. During the Cold War, we kind of took it for granted that that pathological evil was a big part of the world. But after that, that was one of the main abuses of the communist world, that when they started restoring more repressive policies, that one basically did not come back. So one argument you make in the book, which I'd never come across before, is that opening our borders to however many immigrants want to come to the U.S. would actually lead to great economic prosperity and benefits. Um, I wonder if you could walk us through like how that would work. Yeah, absolutely. So here is the really striking thing about immigration from poor countries, rich countries. You can take an average impoverished worker from, say, Haiti, move him to Miami, and within a week, it is easy for him to start making 10 times as much money. All right. Now, if you've done even a basic economics class, you'll be thinking, well, gee, if he's making 10 times as much money, that's probably because he's 10 times as productive because it's not like U.S. employers are especially nice compared to Haitian employers. Rather, it's about there's competition. And if you're producing a lot more, then that's going to increase competition for your services. So if you see that someone comes from Haiti and they are suddenly producing 10 times as much because they're earning 10 times as much, or that's at least an indication of they're producing 10 times as much, then you realize, gee, so this did not merely reduce the production of Haiti and increase the production of the U.S., This increased the production of humanity, increased the production of the world. There's a statistic that we almost never talk about in economics, but it's totally intellectually solid, and that's GWP, gross world product. And the whole idea of this is say, let's go and measure the production of all humanity. And if someone manages to suddenly start making 10 times as much money as they were before, then that's a sign that we have actually increased the wealth of humanity by nine times their original earnings. And then there's the question of who actually gains this. Obviously, the immigrant is getting a lot of his extra productivity. But at the same time, when you're producing a lot more stuff, this means that consumers are going to be getting a better deal out of all of this. So in the book, I have this thought experiment where we imagine that there's some farming going on in Antarctica. And then finally, some country takes pity on the Antarctican farmers who are just barely surviving, lets them move. So when you move Antarctican farmers to, say, Argentina, their agricultural productivity skyrockets. They're better off, but they're not the only ones who are better off because they don't eat all the new food they grow. They sell that food on the world market, which means the price of food goes down. And then everybody who eats actually gets a part of that gain. A way of thinking about this that I really push is, first of all, to repeat what I consider the number one principle of economics, which is that the secret of mass consumption is mass production. The secret of mass consumption is mass production. If you go around the world, you can see that basically all countries with high consumption have high production. Basically all countries with low consumption have low production. And then stepping back, you realize that if we can do something that gets production way up, this means that consumption is going to go up a lot as well. And then here's the really deep insight, which is that while logically it is possible that all of the gains could just go to one very small group, It is pretty much impossible in all of economic history to find any case where there have been very large economic gains which were not broadly shared. 
So the Industrial Revolution does not just benefit factory owners, benefits everyone who wants to wear a second shirt. The Agricultural Revolution does not just benefit tractor manufacturers, benefits everybody who eats. The internet does not just benefit computer programmers, it benefits everyone who uses computers, which bizarrely, you can often do stuff on computers for free. That's something that economists did not see coming back in the <laughs> 80s. But I mean, although what I did not see coming is that people could get super unhappy about stuff they get for free. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we, we can pile <laughs> the surprise on top of surprise. First of all, it's free. And second of all, people are complaining. But in any case, this all comes down to is that there are these large gains from immigration. And then here's what's really striking. People like Michael Clemens went and estimated what are the total potential gains that we could get out of letting anyone take a job anywhere. What they realized is actually here we're multiplying one huge thing times another huge thing. The one huge thing is the gain in productivity that people get when they go from a poor country to rich country. But the other huge thing is the total number of people that want to leave. Now we can talk about that more, but it is almost impossible to deny that over a billion people would move within a fairly short amount of time, say 10 or 20 years if they could. So when you multiply a very large gain per person times a very large number of people that want to actually come, well, you're multiplying two huge things together and you get something astronomical, which is why people like Michael Clements are able to get these estimates of saying that GWP, gross world product, the total production of humanity, would roughly double in the long run under open borders, which is what inspires so much of this book. I think, so I'm imagining having this conversation with friends and family. And the first thing I'm imagining them saying is, well, wait a minute, the person who comes over here from Haiti uh, and gets paid 10 times as much is just getting paid 10 times as much for doing the same thing because here Mm -hmm. everybody expects to get paid 10 times as much, Mm -hmm. but they're not actually doing 10 (laughs) times as much. So, you know, this imaginary response to my friends and family, like, are they getting something wrong or is it just that that's not as frequent or common? Yeah, they're getting something way wrong. Okay. So here's the thing. If it's agriculture, then we can very easily show that. Yeah, that's a good example of that. Yeah. All right. So when you take a a Mexican farmer who's working on a primitive family farm in Mexico, move him to a U.S. farm, you can actually measure he's suddenly producing, say, 10 times as much food. That's really easy. And pretty much the same thing goes with manufacturing, where you take someone doing, say – you know, primitive cottage farming in their home country, and then you move them to a modern American factory. And then again, you can see there's a huge amount of production going on. And that's because we have like better tech and more infrastructure and that kind of thing here? There's so, I mean, it's really like, where, what don't we have? What, what yeah. advantage do we not have? In terms of underappreciated advantages, obviously we appreciate tech, we appreciate having more capital, appreciate not having terrible corruption, appreciate not having a civil war going on. Probably the most neglected factor in this change in productivity is actually there's much better management of workers in first world countries. So there's some fascinating research done by people like John Van Rienen and Nicholas Bloom where they actually have measured the quality of management around the world. And what they discover is that in third world countries, they just, they're chronically mismanaged at a severe level. Uh, happy to talk about that more. But anyway, it comes down to this is another big advantage of the first world is this the management is better here. And people are, are just better at figuring out ways to organize human beings for productive purposes, whereas in more traditional societies and less developed economies, we actually see severe nepotism, failure to keep track of inventory, failure to keep track of time, just people getting valuable inputs and then letting them go to waste. Um, so there's that. Now, the, you, you might say we have more practice of that kind of thing, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, so we have more practice and 
uh, you have bigger markets, but you know, like as to quite what's going on is one of the big questions in economics. I mean, the main thing to realize, first of all, is that even in the richest countries, there's a lot of poorly managed firms, right? So there's that. But then to realize that very poorly managed firms in the first world are more of an aberration and they don't tend to last very long. They just go down in flames. Someone opens up a stupid restaurant where they don't know what they're doing. It's like, oh, I can cook. Therefore, I can manage a successful restaurant. No, those are two different skills, actually. Right. So, Another conversation yeah. I've had many times. Yeah. But so that's what's going on in the first world. And yet the most successful companies in the first world, you know, they are run at a level of quality that's kind of hard to imagine until you actually get inside. And if you just listen to Nicholas Bloom talk about how great McDonald's is, and it's like, what a marvel McDonald's is. And then on the yeah. other hand, when you go to poor countries, you'll see that most of their firms are highly nepotistic. They're not even doing basic accounting. They're just sort of doing crummy rules of thumb. They're not keeping track of when people show up. They're not doing pay performance. They're just doing so – they're basically what would we consider to be incompetent management here is sort of the norm there. Uh, with some interesting exceptions, most notably multinational corporations are managed very well all around the world. So you think about a lot of this is more like software where you can develop the software and then you can take it to another very culturally different country and can download the software and train them to go and run it the McDonald's way. And you can get to very high levels of productivity by going and transplanting the uh, corporate models from richer countries, hmm. right? But in any case, uh, the main case where it's harder to see why there's greater productivity for immigrants when they migrate is for services. And to really unlock that, what you need to realize is the main point of a service is to save time. And when you're saving the time of a more productive person, you're actually yourself, therefore, more productive, economically speaking. It's like when you save five minutes of Bill Gates' time, you have done a lot more for the world than when you save five minutes of my time. So even if all you're doing is shining shoes in Haiti versus shining shoes in Miami, when you shine shoes, you're saving time. And when you save the time of someone who is producing a lot more, you've actually contributed more to humanity by saving the time of a more productive person. Mm -hmm. So agriculture, obvious, manufacturing, obvious, services, not as obvious. Yeah. But when you step back and say, what is the point of a service it's to save time? And economically speaking, not all time is created equal. Some people are ultra productive and contribute a lot to the world. And to go and help them out and give them some more time means that they have more time to actually do what they do best. I mean, another example that jumps to mind would be like driving a cab. I guess that also yeah. fits into the time saving. Yeah, model. exactly. Of course. Because you might think, well, I only have 10 hours a day or whatever to mm -hmm. drive in Haiti and I only have 10 hours yeah. a day to drive here. But if I'm driving people around who are doing more, I guess more is getting done. Yes. I mean, in that yeah. case, there's an even bigger difference, which is that you're much likely to have high occupancy in a U.S. cab and low occupancy in a Haitian cab. Right. There's more people yeah. who want cabs yes. and yes. they're from going to do it more. Right. And also, yeah. deeper economic point is that in very poor countries, it's normally for services like cab driving that are catering to tourists to be overpriced because tourists are embarrassed to actually pay the market wage, which means that tons of people enter and just drive around all day hoping to find a tourist. And so, whereas in the US, there's much less downtime for a taxi. So that's another way in which you're a lot more productive. There's a classic story about rickshaws in, in old Hong Kong. And Europeans are were embarrassed to go and pay the normal hourly rate for a Hong Kong worker for a rickshaw because you're in such close personal contact, which means that a pile of people pour into rickshaws and then go around looking for a small number of Europeans to go and give a ride to. So I wonder if we could unpack sort of the significance of productivity a little bit. Um, so this is a conversation I have with people a lot. And one thing I often hear is, 
Oh, productivity, whatever. Who cares? I mean, like, yeah, like, you know. Oh, great. We, you know, I, I don't need seven new iPods. I already have one iPod. Why, why should there be such ridiculous abundance where there's like more stuff than people can ever have? And or I mean, use. What, or use, right? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we don't need all this stuff. We can just live simply, or I don't know, something like mm-hmm. that. And I mean, my sense is that when economists talk about productivity, it's not just like making physical things. It's like human beings doing everything at every level for each mm-hmm. other. And, and, and all of that will count as production in some way. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So most obviously product quality. So yeah, nobody needs seven iPhones, but you might want one better iPhone, right? I mean, this is actually an argument that I often have with my colleague, Tyler Cowan, where he is- Friend of the show. Yeah, friend of the show. <laughs> yes, where he spent a lot of time talking about how there's this terrible income stagnation. And a lot of my response is he's failing to count- most of the economic growth that's actually occurred, which is in the quality of products. Uh, so there's something that statisticians call CPI bias, which is basically the unmeasured part of GDP that is caused by rising product quality, rising product variety, things like that. And I say the standard consensus of people who work on this is that we still are very bad at actually properly accounting for these improvements in the quality of products, which means that actually we are much richer than official statistics tell us. And in particular, rich countries are even richer than they seem to be because in poor countries, they generally have more focus on just getting the basic physical goods and less on improvements in quality, which makes perfect sense. If you don't have a TV at all, then you want to get a TV. But once you got a TV, you don't want seven TVs, you want an awesome TV. And so rich countries have had this shift, I say, from quantity into quality. There's this line that we're dematerializing. You may have seen this meme where it shows all the 1980s technology that is captured in one smartphone. It's pretty hilarious, actually. Yeah. Right? Whereas you can and go back th- to the 50s and it's like room-sized mainframes oh, are yeah. now in our pocket. Yep. So the first world is dematerializing, but the third world is materializing, where they're going from just not having stuff to having stuff. But then the other thing that really doesn't get counted almost ever is just leisure time, free time. And again, this is when someone says, look, why do we need all this stuff? Why can't we just go and enjoy life more? I'll have to say, like, I'm so on board with that, right? And But I'll say, but look, it just seems like not that many people are. So there are some people like this. And honestly, that's kind of where my heart is. When I have friends who are super rich, but they have no free time, I feel sorry for them, actually. Um, now, I would say I could go and talk to them and say, like, wouldn't you feel better if you put less time into getting additional luxuries and more time into actually hanging out with friends. And obviously there's sort of a hidden agenda there, which is I want them to hang out with me and make my free time better. But anyway, the main thing I noticed is that, you know, some people really seem to appreciate the free time and other people will say, yeah, 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 that's great. But I want to go and get another hundred thousand dollars this year. Right. So again, I'd say that's not a really problem with how the economy is working. It's a problem with human values, but you know, obviously employers, if they could either go and get more workers at lower pay or a smaller number of workers at higher pay, as long as it's profitable, they don't really care what the system is. It comes down to human beings, I would say, put too much focus on piling up material possessions. So yeah, like I have this concept of the granite slave. This is someone who just works tons of overtime so they can have granite in their kitchen. And to me, this is just insane. Like, like the granite doesn't love you back. Like, what are you going to do? Sit around staring at the granite and say, I love you, granite. Polish it. Yeah. But I, nevertheless, people will work all this extra time and spend the money on granite. So, you know, as a philosopher and a human being, I'm puzzled by this. But as economists, I say, I guess they prefer granite to their free time. Go figure. It takes all kinds.
Yeah, I guess this is sort of what I was getting at, um, that, like, you know, production just doesn't mean making widgets, mm-hmm. but it, like, I mean, to go back to your service example, services as saving time, so it seems like production is actually tied up in leisure time in the sense oh, yeah. that if services save time, then somebody somewhere has, a, like, a little time block open up in which they could have free time. Yeah, exactly. So in practice, of course, a lot of people, when they get more free time, just want to sell more time. So this is most of the story <laughs> of rising female labor force participation is that you have a lot of moms of younger kids who back with older technology just said, look, I don't have extra energy. I don't have extra time that I want to sell when, well, given how hard my life is. But once you get a lot of labor-saving appliances as well as smaller families, of course, after the baby boom, then there's a lot of women who say, now I do have enough time to want a part-time job. And again, if you're thinking like an economist, you realize that... Yes, so dishwasher might save you three hours a week. For most people, that doesn't change anything. But there are people at the margin, people where they're three hours away from wanting a full-time job. And then that's what tips them over and say, okay, now I want to go and do this. Mm, That's interesting, yeah. Yeah. And there's always a distribution. So, I mean, there's something I always tell students. And they say, yeah, but most people wouldn't do that. Yeah, I agree, most people wouldn't. But to get an effect, we don't need most people to respond. We just need people on the edge to respond and think about the number of people that are three hours for a short of wanting a full-time job. And those are the people who change their behavior when you save in three hours a week. Yeah, it's kind of like a phase transition yeah. in a person's life. So, yeah, very nice. Maybe in, you know, another sense in which more production isn't, doesn't just equal more material widgets, you know, might be take somebody who doesn't own a lot of stuff. Probably even that person would like to have a job that's interesting mm-hmm. in a market where you can get a job with you know, nice working conditions. Like maybe you're not hourly, so you can like take the morning mm-hmm. off to go to the doctor and not have to log your hours and take a pay cut. Mm-hmm. And all these little perks that come oh, yeah. with like middle-class jobs, it seems are made possible by an economy in which people are making lots of stuff and selling it and buying it and so forth. Yeah, of course. I mean, basically your labor economics just says this. Employers would love to go and give you any accommodation you want for a price, right? So they could either go and work you like a dog and pay you a huge wage or they could go and let you take mornings off and have a spa day if you're willing to take a pay cut sufficient to make that profitable for them. So again, the idea that employers only want one contract where everyone toils nonstop from the dawn till dusk just is missing the creativity of the employer. The employer is like, well, wait a second. You're telling me that you would go and take a 55% pay cut to get 45% more free time. Yeah, let's do it. Hell yeah. And I'll just replace you. I'll just, I'll make up the difference by hiring another person who wants a similar deal. Now it's true that if you want something really weird, then you may have trouble finding an employer who wants to accommodate that weird thing because making a personal deal with every single worker is time consuming, especially running a larger business. On the other hand, of course, that's one of the nice things about finding a smaller business is you find someone who's more flexible. Right now, of course, when employers are desperately looking for workers, This is when I strongly advise people, if you want to change your life, change it right now. Start looking really hard for a job that you actually would like. And this is where you'll find that employers are uncharacteristically open-minded. I also have a book on education talking about how frustrating it is that you need to get a bunch of relevant degrees in order to get the job you want. And they look, this is a golden opportunity to skip a degree and get the job you want. Just find someone who's really desperate for a worker and say, hey, I, I know my stuff give me a chance and I'll prove myself. And normally they might say, "Eh, I don't want to take a chance on this unproven quantity. But right now is where if you talk a good game, you might be able to skip a full degree and still get the job you want, except of course in special license occupations. But most jobs aren't actually licensed. Uh, You know, a lot are, it's crazy, florists are licensed. Yeah. Um, In some states, (laughs) not everyone. 
Okay, good. So we were talking about production because uh, one of the reasons you strongly favor open borders is that when somebody who comes from a country that's not as productive and immigrates into a country that's more productive, they instantly start doing more with their life, pretty yeah. much. Um, they're, they're able to realize their talents. It seems like part of the idea here is that certain regions of the world have this kind of je ne sais quoi, mm-hmm. such that as soon as somebody enters the region, they like transform somehow and they have abilities mm-hmm. they didn't have before. I find that kind of interesting. I mean, I, I'm attracted mm-hmm. by the idea, but like it also feels kind of mystical or something. But I wonder if you could unpack that a little yeah, bit. Yeah, that's a great question. So actually, there's a lot of people on social media who dislike me. And <laughs> one of the accusations that are going, oh, yeah, that's a good question. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> 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 there's a debate among my friends about whether they would like me if they actually had lunch with me. But so there's you know, people on social media who don't like me. And one of the stronger negative accusations made against me is that Brian believes in magic dirt. Magic dirt, the idea that someone can come from herding goats in Afghanistan, illiterate, and as soon as their toe touches U.S. soil, they're magically transformed and they become an investment banker who speaks fluent English and wants to do gay marriage or something like that. And I always say, look, I do not believe in magic dirt, but I do believe in something that's kind of magical, like you said, and I call it magic culture. Magic culture amounts to two things. First of all, Our economy really can take an illiterate Afghan goat herder and in a short amount of time turn him into a productive member of our society. Maybe he's going to be washing dishes in an Afghan restaurant, but that is a productive thing. Like like, the dishes need to be washed at the Afghan restaurant and he's going to throw them out and buy new dishes every time. Yeah, like so. And like there's already some people who speak his language there. So he slots right in and it's like you might say, well, he'll be there'll be some cultural confusion. Sure, it's good enough. It's good enough. So that's not that magical. But even so, it is a bit amazing that you can take someone who seems so culturally distant and yet so quickly turn them into a productive member of society. But the really magic part comes for the kids of that illiterate Afghan goat herder who, as long as they arrive in the country at a reasonably young age, they generally acculturate almost entirely to the point where the parents are unhappy with how assimilated they really are. Right? So yeah, there is something a bit magical about it. But on the je ne sais quoi, I would say that Again, there's a bunch of things that we can point to that are nameable. So again, one of them is generally much better economic policies in the countries that receive immigrants. So usually much more free market policies, and especially normally there is a long history of that because you can have good policies for a week and it doesn't make your country rich. You need to have a long history of good policies in order to rack up the immense gains that you get from having good policies. So that's one big difference is that richer countries generally have better policies. Another one, like I said, is they usually have better management. So countries that are rich, you, they, like they are better in terms of having you know, pay performance and keeping good track of inventory and monitoring when people show up on time and also just trying to do experiments on improving productivity, doing what people in software engineering call A-B testing. We just try it a couple of ways and see which one actually works experimentally. So, and especially the corporations you've heard of are generally the most scientifically managed in this respect. And yeah, it works, right? There's a reason why they are where they are. It doesn't always work, but nevertheless, it is a huge advance over rule of thumb methods or just simple family business methods. So you've got that stuff. But then again, things just like peace. It's really valuable to have peace. You know, it's like, why can't you open a successful business in Syria during the civil war? It's like, well, like who could do such a thing? Who's going to go leave the house? Like, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so yeah, but like then at the end of the day, of course, there is this ongoing debate about why are some countries rich and some countries poor. And 
there is some sense of, well, there's just some things that we haven't quite figured out what they are, but we know they're there. Now, which, you know, often I get the question of, look, instead of moving people from poor countries to rich countries, why don't we just fix the poor countries? And yeah. my answer to that is always because we know how to move people from poor countries to rich countries, and we really don't know how to fix poor countries, right? Moving people from poor countries to rich countries is practically foolproof. It is almost without fail. You can go and improve the lives of a work, life of a working age person by just putting him into a richer country and he, let us say, find a job. And they will find a job which, while often not good compared to what people in the receiving country are used to, is fantastic compared to the job uh, that he had back home. Hmm. And I feel like there's a first personal yeah. version of that, too. Hmm. You know, suppose I'm in an environment where I just feel, whatever, oppressed in every possible mm-hmm. way. I don't have any economic yeah. opportunity. Nobody appreciates my talents. Um, I don't get along with people. Yeah, afraid for my life, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like I'm faced with a choice of A, single-handedly changing my entire society somehow. (laughs) I don't know how I'm going to do that. Or B, leaving. Well, I know what leaving would be. That's pretty, you know, I don't have to like scratch my head thinking about what would it be to leave? No, I just leave. Uh, So, you know, that point I feel like Mm -hmm. has sort of first personal and third personal versions, which are both pretty compelling. Yeah. I mean, especially, of course, if you've got friends, relatives that are already in the country that you want to go to who are right there to help you bridge the gap. Right now on the question of, well, why is it so hard to fix poor countries? Mainly we can just say, well, we know that it is. So it's, this is not a question of whether, it's a question of why, right? So there's really two versions of this. One is we don't know enough. And the other one is we don't have the steel to do it, right? So I actually tend to be in the second group. Right. So you take a look at Afghanistan. The U.S. spends 20 years trying to fix Afghanistan, and it's a total failure right now as to why that was. I mean, there's definitely some people, and it's a reasonable position, saying, well, we just didn't know what to do. It's just so culturally different from us. It's just too hard. I'm not that convinced of that. I tend to think that if you really made that priority one and just said, look, we're willing to lose a million soldiers from terrorist attacks in order to fix this country. We don't care how long it takes. We're here. We're ready. People believe that. Then I think you could do it. Mm-hmm. But – it's just that people would laugh in your face, like the Americans aren't willing to lose a million. They're not willing to lose 10,000. Right? Yeah. Americans are weak. <laughs> so it might be hard to test your hypothesis in other yeah. words. Yeah. I mean, again, like, like the main thing I would say is we have some examples that to my mind are fairly impressive, like the reconstruction of Germany and Japan, right, mm-hmm. where like, you know, those were cases where the U.S. went into extraordinarily authoritarian and militaristic countries, but with a lot of determination, right, and they – did manage to fix them. I know there are other stories about how Germany and Japan were already very advanced and had a lot of social capital and so on. But in a way, to me, those are kind of post hoc because, yes, there are some reasons to think that they could be reformed, but there's also some really big reasons to think that they could never be reformed. When, you know, Japan is, at the time, you might say was the most militaristic society on earth. And to say, you know what we're going to do to you guys? You're going to get to have no military now. Like, what do you mean we can't have any military? This is the most respected and important institution in our society. Like, was... Yeah. was. So anyway, so the reasonable position is somewhere in between that partly there is some ignorance about the best way to fix things and partly there is a lack of will. I have a lot of disagreements with colleagues about what they call state capacity. And so like, the problem is not the capacity, it's priorities. It's whether you really are determined and whether you put some results ahead of other results and are willing to just pay the costs or whether you give up easily. And yes, but in any case, whatever the reason is for the failure of state building or fixing poor societies, we just see that it doesn't get done. And so if you've got one method that's totally effective and demonstrably works and another one that is just a pipe dream, don't do the pipe dream. 
And this seems like a nice segue into another theme that comes up in your book, which is basically that like we have a moral right to be able to go where we want to. Mm-hmm. And the stuff we've been saying seems to really motivate that because if it's the case that, well, I've, you know, plan A, single-handedly change my entire society, plan B, <laughs> leave, uh, one of those options is way easier and guaranteed to work pretty much. Uh, yeah, it seems like I should have the right to take the easier option mm-hmm. that's definitely going to work. So is that right? Uh, do human beings generally, in your view, have a moral right to like move around and be and live wherever they want? Yes. So, you know, I'm not an absolutist about this. So if it's like I'm going to go and kill a million people with my contagious disease, then all right. Uh, well, you know, you have a, pre- a presumptive right, but the presumption is going to be defeased in that case. But yeah, so a monster like, that's made of fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go into a crowded. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But the way I think about this is like, you know, if you're in a position to say either yes or no to a person that just wants to come to your country and get a job, like it seems like it is so harmful to them to say no that you ought to have a good reason to say no if you're going to say no. And this is what most of the book actually tries to deal with is are there actually good reasons to say no? Of course, I don't want to say I'm not going to talk to people that don't agree with this. Right? And obviously, this is not a popular view. The normal view is every country is an absolute right to decide who gets to come to their country or not. Although I will say look, it just seems fairly odd when you step outside your own society and just imagine trying to explain this to a Martian about why it is terrible to say that someone cannot move from Mississippi to New York, but it's perfectly fine to say they can't move from Mexico to San Diego. Right? So again, why exactly is that okay? And especially when you think about a case like suppose that someone is born in another country, but their parents' country doesn't have birthright citizenship. So now like you're not a citizen and then you can't come, right? Or again, just imagine just being 30 and then discovering that your parents moved you here illegally, right? And then say, so should you be deported now to a country you've never been to? That would seem fairly You can't understand anybody, you know. Yeah. (laughs) What are you supposed to do when you get there? So anyway. So what I say is it seems like there is at least a moral presumption that a person should be able to live and work wherever they want. And then most of what the book does is say, all right, so then why should we consider waiving this moral presumption? Although along the way, I do try to address people who just say, no, I don't agree with that. Countries are the property of their citizens and we should only let people in if they benefit natives. And that's a lot of what I'm also going to do in the book is along the way that I am saying that there aren't good reasons to say no. I'm also saying that there are some really good reasons to say yes and that the yes reasons outweigh the no reasons by a large factor. Well, let's talk about one of those um, common no reasons that people give. So one thing I very often hear when I'm involved in conversations about open borders is something like, well, you can't just let your country be flooded Mm -hmm. by more people than it can accommodate. Not really an issue so much in the U.S. because the U.S. has so Mm -hmm. much empty space. But I don't know, like sometimes an example Mm -hmm. people give here is like, you know, Greece having, you know, a million Mm -hmm. Syrian (laughs) refugees coming in or something like that. We could also make up a hypothetical example. Luxembourg. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, What if like 500 million people all just decide they have to move to Luxembourg? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, can Luxembourg reasonably accommodate that many people? Like, do you think it's right to say that if most countries in the world adopted an open borders policy, there would be this danger that maybe for I don't know why, but for some reason vast numbers of people would decide to go somewhere and swamp it. Right. So that's a great question. And the answer, of course, also holds within a country. So before COVID, at least, most people considered New York to be an extremely desirable location. And a lot of people say, I would love to live there. Yet, of course, there is one major factor that keeps them from moving, which is price. 
So if real estate prices are high, then yeah, someone- I'm from the area and I don't live there anymore. I live in Chicago yes. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so real, real estate prices are high, then you might be legally free to go there and yet you'll say, no thanks, because I'm actually gonna have a lower living standard taking into account those real estate prices. Yeah. Now, I'm actually, I'm actually working on another book on housing deregulation. And what I say is a lot of those high prices are actually not due to the intrinsic scarcity of housing. It's due to regulation that makes it really hard to build new housing. But in any case, in the short run, of course, it is true that there isn't enough housing for people. And again, if there is a short run, large increase in desire to live in a place, then the immediate response to the market is for prices to go up, which then changes people's minds. So I'd say that is the main answer to people that are worried about swamping is that as long as you've got private property, then real estate prices are a very nice way to prevent people from moving in large amounts in the short run. But at the same time, it has the nice result that it really encourages people to build more housing. So in the long run, you can indeed accommodate vast numbers of people. Right? So the idea that the United States has room, but other countries don't is pretty much crazy. Like there's almost every country on earth could accommodate vastly more people if they just would go and build a lot more housing. So you know, Germany has vastly higher population density than the US. But if you've driven around Germany or taken trains, you can see large areas like the area between Berlin and Hamburg is quite vacant. And you're like going like, what the world's going on here? I thought this was a high density country. This, mm. You could fit tons of new cities here and yet they aren't here. Of course, you can't do it overnight. And probably the best way to think about this though is to look at countries that have moved hundreds of millions of people in a few decades. And there are such countries. Hmm. So most yeah, notably China simple. and India. China uh, and India mm -hmm. have moved hundreds of millions of people from rural villages, usually poor, into new cities. Often these are cities that were not cities at first, they're just towns, but they have become cities in the process of accepting enormous migration from the rural parts of their countries. Now, of course, it's true that if the entire rural population tried moving to Beijing on one day, that would be a disaster. But you can still do it over the course of 30 years and you really can add hundreds of millions of people to urban areas. So again, I would say very much the same holds for international migration as well. Well, what about like a country on a small island? Would that be an exception case or? So even small islands, you can have skyscrapers. There are such places, <laughs> Singapore. Yeah, I was thinking now, of Singapore yeah. actually. Yeah. So yeah, so again, like, like you can, even Singapore actually, like there's plenty of places you could add a lot of density. Uh -huh. But what I would say there is, you know, like if you really get to the limit of technology, that's when prices just start going up. And that's what gets people to say, okay, I guess I don't want to go there anymore. Right, I mean, so like I'd say like the main thing that would be a fair objection. I suppose that people are coming from a situation where they were so desperate, they'd rather sleep on the streets of Singapore than stay in the middle of a war zone. That's where you could actually see something bad happening. Although that's where I always encourage people, you know, how about you let people come before their country descends into bloodbath <laughs> yeah. uh, when there's still time to go and move people in an orderly manner. So, I mean, like, you know, think about this. When a disaster is coming to an area of a rich country. Normally you tell people is start evacuating, get out of the New Orleans before the hurricane hits so that you'll stay safe, right? But what we do internationally is there's a whole lot of people who wanna leave a country where they see the political equivalent of hurricane coming. And they say, no, nah, we don't know there's really gonna be civil war. We don't know it's gonna be that bad, just wait and see. And then finally the civil war comes, it's like, who could have seen it? Okay, now I guess we'll let some people come, but now they're really desperate. They don't have, they've lost everything and now they're coming as penniless refugees rather than being able to at least leave with a, in a timely and orderly way, which they could have done if they'd been able to leave earlier. I mean, mm -hmm. there is the initial question of whether you'd even have a civil war if people in a desperate country knew they could just leave. So we like, yeah, isn't that easier than 
fighting to the death. Yeah, I mean, you think about you know, like how do you recruit for the uh, for an army in the middle of the Syrian civil war? Well, you find some desperate young men who say like fighting in this war is better deal for me than the next best option, right? And yeah, there's going to be some fanatics uh, who are coming because they're ready to die for the cause, but vastly larger number of people who are like, man, I've got some really crummy options here. And if you just leave, just imagine just trying to fight the Syrian civil war if anyone who didn't like it in Syria had already left. I mean, like the size of the armies would, <laughs> would be rather small, probably. Like 20% left despite all the immigration restrictions. So it does not seem crazy to me to think that 80% of Syrians would have left if they were free to leave. So maybe the general takeaway here is that when we do see large swaths of people trying to migrate somewhere, that's often the result of like pressure having built up from yeah. over a long period of time mm -hmm. when they were blocked from moving. Oh, yeah. Whereas if that pressure hadn't yeah. been there and people just sort of trickled in at their natural mm -hmm. desired rate, we wouldn't even have to kind of have to worry about uh, yeah. countries getting swamped with immigrants. Right. I mean, of course, a lot of this also depends upon what your definition of swamped is. If swamped is our population rises by 1% per year, then, yeah, no. uh, then I'm going to say, yeah, well, that's going to happen. That's what I want to happen. Right. If your definition of swamped is your population doubling in a year, that's what I say. That's highly unrealistic, except in some fairly fanciful or extreme scenarios. Mm. Right. So you know, one thing that I thought about is you know, when Germany, West Germany was receiving vast numbers of East German immigrants. So it was actually a much larger percentage change in the population than from the Syrian civil war. But there's basically no complaining about that because it's like, well, they're fellow Germans. So, of course, it's cool for them to come here. So, you know, a lot of the perception of swamping has more to do with the qualitative idea of I don't like this kind of person rather than the quantitative we can't handle this number of people. Right? Yeah, you know, there's that version of the argument, too, where it's yeah. like um, you could put it in terms of a problem for democracy where like, oh, well, what happens if we have a democracy with open borders mm -hmm. and tons and tons of people come here who don't believe in democracy? Are they going to like vote for there not to be one anymore and mm -hmm. have democracy undermine itself? So I guess that's a version of, of the mm -hmm. worry as well. Yeah, so I talk about this extensively in the book, and main thing just to start off with is an empirical question. So is it really true that you're likely to get a large influx of immigrants who are going to vote to end democracy or anything like that? Yeah. And Or whatever, end yeah, free yeah. speech, pick yeah, your favorite yeah, yes, thing. Yeah, yeah. Ex exactly, whatever. You know, what you, like you're, you'll get a bunch of people who will vote to turn your country into a socialist totalitarian hellhole. Yeah. Uh, so main thing I say there, first of all, of course, there is a clear difference between saying you can live and work here and saying you can vote here. Right, so that's step one. If you really are worried about this, then it makes sense to say, look, it's hard to become a citizen here. Right? But it then, seems like you're not yes. worried about that so much. Yeah. So you know, ultimately, I'm not. So, or, I mean, really what I'll say is I'm worried about both things. So oh, okay. I'll say that mm -hmm. when immigrants can't vote, we get the bad policies we've got, which is that we keep immigrants out. So if immigrants could vote, would be immigrants could vote, the border would be open already. Yeah, so, probably they'd be in favor of open right. borders, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. So, or at least they'd be at least favor a lot more open. Yeah. But then on the question of will they vote for risk policies, this is where I did put a lot of work into studying the political opinions of the foreign-born versus the native-born. You know, first fact is it's not a night and day difference. It's not like Americans are raging libertarians and immigrants are raging Stalinists. It's a marginal difference. But second of all, on top of that, we just see very low voter turnout among the foreign-born even when they're eligible to vote. Essentially, because when you move to another country, you're not that engaged by its politics. It's not what you grew up with. And also, you've got bigger fish to fry. It's like, I've got, I'm not worried about this election. I'm worried about getting a job and making a decent life for my kids and finding a decent place to live and that kind of thing. Right. And then the real deep question is on assimilation. What happens to the political views of their kids? And there, again, it looks like there is quite high assimilation. Uh, the main thing that 
does check out, I would say, is that today immigrants are a lot more democratic than the native-born population. What is striking, though, is that this is a new phenomenon. Back in the 1980s, it was not true. There is a standard line among right-wing people saying that it's just because immigrants want to go and live for free off the welfare state. This really does not fit the facts at all because we can see that even the highest earning immigrant groups like Indian Americans, who are now the highest earning ethnicity in the U.S., are also heavily democratic, like four to one DR ratio, in addition to being ultra-socially conservative. So in measure by behavior, at least, uh, Indian Americans are like more likely than like any native-born group that I've ever been able to find to raise their kids with two married parents. So they have both kids growing up with their two biological parents. So if you look at this, it seems like Indians are both rich and socially conservative. So then why are they so democratic? And and I think the honest answer here is that they feel like Republicans do not like them, right? And so someone that naturally in terms of worldview and policies they would favor would be your friend. If you have a negative attitude towards them, they are not your friend. Yeah, so So, it's exclusively a branding thing and not, you know, what the party is supposedly about. Yeah. Or, you know, of course, if your party is about being hostile to immigrants, then uh, there's that. And, <laughs> Hopefully. Yeah. And, you know, so like if you look at Reagan's speeches, so Reagan's City on a Hill speech, he, if you read the speech, he appears to actually advocate open borders in the speech. Obviously, <laughs> he did not, in fact, make any effort to do that. Perhaps, you know, most possibly because he didn't think it through the speech. And all uh, the other possibilities just realized it was hopeless. So he didn't even try and just tried to move things as much as he could but say that Republicans have moved far away from that. And then your negative attitude causes them to be against you, which then reinforces the negative attitude. By the way, of course, you might say, well, like, be that as it may, they're still going to vote for the other side. The other side is terrible. I mean, what is striking, as I'll say, is like, you know, that is not the attitude of winners. The attitude of winners is not they never vote for us anyway, so forget them. The attitude of winners is how can we make new friends? This is how Republicans swip Catholics. So Catholics were heavily democratic for 100 years, and then Republicans figured out a way of switching, especially religious Catholics, over to their party. So if you really do want to win in politics, you are always looking at groups and saying, how can we turn enemies into friends, rather than saying there are enemies, nothing can be done about it, and let's try to get their numbers down as much as possible. There's also the Southern strategy, I guess, may be an example of that as well. yeah, Yeah. Yeah, makes sense. So we talked about a choice between like, well, do we try to improve the situation in a country that's having trouble or do we set things up so that, you know, enterprising people in that country that's having trouble can go to another country that's less in trouble? Is there a potential worry there that if like, let's say everyone was like maximally enterprising Mm -hmm. and you had this just mass exodus out of every country that's having trouble, would it like, would that lead to some sort of Mad Max wasteland (laughs) in the countries that everybody had left? And is that something we should be concerned about? Hmm. I mean, so the scenario where literally everyone leaves, then you could just say that it's not Mad Max. It's an empty area of land. It's a nature preserve. Yes. (laughs) Very, very likely someone at that point would say, huh, there's so few people here. I think we can fix things now. (laughs) Nobody's standing in my way. Yeah. yeah, Yes. All the bureaucrats that used to be demanding bribes to go and do anything have left the country. So there is that. But again, the more likely scenario is just that the most enterprising people leave and then there's a massive brain drain and then the people behind are worse off. And logically speaking, it's totally possible. Could be. 
the main thing to realize is that there's factors on both sides. So on the other side is that there can be remittances where people leave the country, send money home. You've got business connections. Someone goes to another country, makes some business connections, and then goes back to their home country in order to take advantage of those connections. There's retirement communities. Someone goes to another country, they work for their life, and they come back to live in their home country. There's seasonal work which right now for low-skilled workers, especially legal low-skilled workers, would be crazy because you pay so much money to get in once you're in, you're not going back. But if you could go home for the price of a boat ticket or a bus ticket, then yeah, seasonal work makes a lot of sense. Then you make your money for half the year in the other country and you go back to your own country in order to spend the money and hang out with friends and family. So anyway, when you realize we got things on both sides, then you realize, well, this is an empirical question. And then how could we resolve it? Well, the answer is we actually have a number of cases of a very poor country that does have an open world with a rich country. So not only can we see what happens to the leavers, we can see what happens to the stayers. So the example that would be most familiar to a US audience is Puerto Rico. So in 1904, the US Supreme Court has a ruling that establishes open borders between the US and Puerto Rico. The 100 years later, over half of all people of Puerto Rican descent are now living in the continental United States and have left Puerto Rico. And yet, if you go back to Puerto Rico, what you'll learn is it's basically the richest island in the Caribbean. All right, now it's poorer than Mississippi, but that's not the relevant comparison. Probably the relevant comparison is more like the Dominican Republic, where you can see Puerto Rico is like five times as rich as the Dominican Republic. Puerto Rico's got a bunch of problems, but compared to its neighbors, it's doing fantastic. Some the, others, the mechanism for that is what you just described, yeah, stuff like people yeah, sending yeah, money yeah, back. That's and, a lot of it. I mean, yeah. like, you know, to be fair, there's also probably things like the federal government of the U.S. goes and gives extra money to Puerto Rico and things like that. But, yeah. but a ton of it is just remittances and business connections and retirements and seasonal work and put that all together. Or like other examples, you've got France and French Guiana. Right, so French Guiana looks a lot better than the neighboring Guianas because they got open borders to France. French Guiana belongs to the European Union. A country in South America belongs to the European Union. Mm -hmm. And then there are some islands that have open borders with, I believe, New Zealand. And again, what you see is that while logically speaking, it could just empty out the island and destroy the country or at least be bad for the minority that stays behind. But in practice, it looks like overall it's a big net positive. There's also some interesting work on things that have more specific measures like what does what, what the exit of so many medical professionals from the Philippines do to medical care in the Philippines? So Michael Clemens has a great paper where he shows that actually it improves access to medical care in the Philippines because one of the main reasons to study in the medical professions of the Philippines is it gives you a lottery ticket to get out of the Philippines. And some people who get their medical knowledge win the lottery and leave. But most people who are sucked in by this lottery ticket don't win the lottery and then they're there and then they provide medical care to Filipinos. So even there, it looks like the people that stay behind benefit from the prospect of being able to leave the Philippines. Yeah. So in other words, um, you're acknowledging that there's some risk yeah. of the you know ghost town effect. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, yeah. You have to be a fool like not to acceptable risk. Yeah. You have to be a fool not to acknowledge risk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all you can say is, well, what's happened all the other times this has occurred. And then yeah. on top of it, just realizing, so Lant Pritchett has this great work on ghost towns, as you're mentioning, and what he calls zombie economies, is, you know, like even within rich countries, it is totally normal for large areas to depopulate. So if you look at the United States, there is an area about the size of Mexico that now has lower population than it did like 100 years ago, right? And basically, it's farm country, right? So these are places where their absolute population has fallen, even though the population of the U.S. has probably like tripled during this period, right? And... Uh, it's kind of sad to drive through a depopulated area, but what's striking, Pritchett points out, is that wages in these depopulated areas are not that far below the rest of the country because they were people who just leave. 
right? Whereas when you go to a very poor country, you'll see that when conditions in these countries are bad, people don't really have the choice to leave, and so they just stay there suffering. And so the thought experiment he asked is, imagine you have a town in the US where the, you strike gold, but big population moves in, the gold runs out, and then you put a wall around the town and say, no one can leave. What does that accomplish? Like, it saves the town. Well, great, but it ruins the lives of the people. <laughs> another thing you mentioned in the book is another fan of the free market, uh, Milton Friedman, who actually had a worry about open borders that it was incompatible with the welfare state. So what exactly was Milton Friedman's worry? Right. Yeah. So the worry is basically this. The U.S. welfare state pays more for non-work than most countries on earth pay for work. So if you could either work in Mexico or be on welfare in the U.S., you'd rather be on welfare in the U.S. And it came down to this is just not fiscally sustainable. Right. So that was Friedman's worry. To be fair to Friedman, he was asked this in an interview in, I believe, Panama. And elsewhere in the interview, he says he hadn't even thought about it that much. So nevertheless, <laughs> okay. he, yeah, he has been very heavily and repeatedly quoted <laughs> all over the world. And, and to me in particular, like every month or so, someone emails me, well, obviously, you've never heard of Milton Friedman's quote. I, it's actually in my book. <laughs> so there's that. But anyway, like, you know, so is he right or wrong? And the answer is, well, theoretically, maybe. Right? It just comes down to this question of what are all the taxes that we can expect immigrants to pay versus all the services that we expect them to use. And first question, obviously, is, is that even negative? So is it even true that people spend more, you know, use, consume more services than they pay in taxes if they're foreign born? But then the second question is, if it is negative, is it so negative that it's just not doable, that it would just end in disaster? All right. So anyway, this is one where the obvious thing is to go to the numbers and this is, by the way, something that virtually no one on earth has ever done because numbers are very boring <laughs> and people are not interested in numbers. They would rather just go and ballpark extremely complex financial calculations. You, know, you wouldn't go and want to plan for your retirement this way, but people will go and proclaim what a country fiscally can or can't handle. But anyway, so there are multiple different bodies of research that go and study this. I rely heavily upon the National Academy of Sciences most recent reports, but there are others. And really what I'll say is there is a range between people saying that immigrants are net fiscal positive. They actually pay more in taxes than they use in services. Uh, there's people saying it's about you know, break even. There's people saying that it's a moderate negative, but it's very hard finding anyone saying that it is a large negative, right? So uh, whatever, so again, within the whole, this whole range, I'll say this is totally doable. There's the main question of what about subpopulations? Right. I think so, you find it differs both depending on the person's yes, age right. and the age at which they came to the country. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. So one of the main costs that people are going to impose on U.S. taxpayers uh, under the current system is being able to collect old age benefits. But if you come when you're 20, those old age benefits are like 45 years in the future. And Finance 101, if you can kick a debt 45 years into the future, that dissolves a lot of the debt from the point of view of the person that has to pay it. I mean, you can at least subtract yeah. 45 years worth of taxes. Yeah, and, and in, but also interest. Interest is the key uh, thing, yeah. a foregone mm -hmm. interest. So yeah, to pay you a million dollars 45 years from now, I don't need a million dollars. <laughs> I, I can put aside a much smaller amount and let it accumulate interest and then pay you a million dollars 45 years from now. Uh, now, to be fair, out of all the critics of the book, the one time someone actually found a factual mistake was in that chapter. So, and I like to fess up on this. So economist Jason Richwine found that I had misinterpreted the numbers in one of the tables. So I have a blog post explaining exactly what I did wrong. And the upshot of this was that 
I came out with young high school dropout immigrants are still fiscal positive, and he pointed out that if you really read the table properly, then they do turn out to be a net negative. So I just want to be forthcoming about that. At the same time, my deeper point in my argument with Milton is, look, well, we already know for a fact that there's a lot of natives that are statistically likely to be net fiscal burdens, and yet Milton would have been horrified by the idea of saying that you can only have children if we statistically predict that they will be net taxpayers. So, I mean, again, you might say, well, what if it would lead to total collapse of the country if we didn't restrict fertility? It's like, well, then we need to think about it. But if it's just going to be a moderate burden, then no, like that's not the kind of sacrifice of human freedom that you should entertain just for a moderate problem. And instead, if you had that, then you might say, well, let's think about changing the welfare state. Uh, now, finally, a really key point to consider is that all these calculations assume that immigrants have to receive exactly the same package of taxes and benefits the natives do. And what's quite striking is that the countries on earth that are most open to immigrants do not do that. I'm referring to the Gulf monarchies. So the Gulf monarchies in particular do not share the oil money with foreigners. They let in enormous numbers of foreigners, but then they do not treat them the same as citizens. Uh, as a result, the United Arab Emirates is 85% foreign born, right? Uh, people very much like to look down on them and say there are moral inferiors because they don't treat immigrants so well. And it's true they don't treat immigrants so well, except in one crucial respect, they let them in. I'll let them in. So what good does it do to someone to say, hey, if we ever get into Sweden, you're going to be treated great, but Sweden will never let you in. So aren't you happy about Swedish immigration policy now? <laughs> like, no, I'd much rather that they didn't treat me so well and did let me in. Right. So that is what the Gulf monarchies do. So mm. lots of other things about them are terrible, but their immigration policies, I say, are much better than that of any first world country, actually. In particular, Gulf monarchies let in low skin immigrants to work. Right. In first world countries, basically you got to be a refugee or have a close blood relative in the country if you want to have hope of getting in. Well, the Gulf monarchies will let low skilled workers go in there to be janitors and transform their lives and go home to Pakistan and be the richest guy in the village after that. So, you know, this is something that people feel is ugly, but it's an ugly truth that what they're doing is much better for the global poor than what rich countries do. And yeah, I think this is something we often don't think about. We often think about like, well, we're only going to count the people who get in yeah. without thinking about yeah. like, well, wait a minute, is it a wrong to the person not to let them in in the yeah. first place, you know, and is letting them in in the first place mm -hmm. a prerequisite for treating them well? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, there's a huge narcissism about this where you it, like, you feel really bad about what, badly off people that you see and you barely care at all about badly off people that you don't see. Right. So, you know, the way I often like to put it is, so right now, if you don't want to see Haitian poverty, it's super easy to never see Haitian poverty. Just do not go to Haiti and you won't see it. Right. On the other hand, under open borders, a lot of Haitians would come and they probably would not be working in the best jobs. And you might drive through an area of town. This is little Port-au-Prince. And you see, hey, they don't live as well as middle-class Americans. Now I feel really sorry for them. It's like, look, they are way better off than they were back in Haiti. And the only reason you're feeling sorry for them is just because you happen to be looking at them. And if you were a real humanitarian, you'd be focused not on the poverty that you see, but the poverty that exists. So another thing I think that philosophers are going to enjoy in your book is the section where you run through a bunch of the mainline theories in normative ethics and mm -hmm. argue that each of these basically pushes you to favor open borders. Mm -hmm. So maybe we could run through some of those. Yeah, yeah, totally. So what's the utilitarian case for open borders? Right. So the utilitarian view, and since you're a philosopher, you know there's a bunch of complexities here, but right. quick version just says maximize the sum of human happiness. And the main thing you say about open borders is you've got a large increase in the production of humanity combined with a pro-poor shift in the distribution because a lot of the gains will go to the poorest people in the world. So essentially, if you can raise total production and increase equality at the same time, then it's almost a utilitarian no-brainer. 
right? And never mind things like being able to escape war zones and other horrible things that people can get away from under open borders. Those are not to be discounted. Cool. Utilitarianism, check. What would be the uh, political libertarian case for open borders? Yeah. So the political libertarian case is really easy. Since the standard libertarian view is there's a strong presumption against government doing anything, keeping immigrants from coming to your country to go and live and work is something. So it's presumptively something the government should not do. And again, especially when, uh, if you are a libertarian, you should be ultra hostile to the view that government is the real owner of the whole country, right? That is a classic socialist view that government is the true owner of the country and private property is just at the sufferance of the government. So, you know, immigration comes down to, look, there is an employer that wants to hire a foreigner. There is a landlord that wants to rent to him. There is a store that wants to sell him stuff. What business does government have to say that you can't do it? There is a line of dissident libertarian thought saying, no, no, uh, you're not allowed to go and, and uh, invite people into my house without my permission. Therefore, you shouldn't be allowed right, to invite immigrants to the country yeah. without the country's permission. And again, like if that is your view, you should not be a libertarian because the same would apply to any other act of government. You aren't allowed to open up a church in my house. Therefore, you should need the government's permission to open up a church. You aren't allowed to open up a store in my house. Therefore, you should need government's permission to open up a store. It's the same argument exactly. Hmm. And again, in both cases, like either you believe in private property or at least a presumption thereof. And then you say, look, it doesn't matter what the government thinks. It's the up to the private property owner. Or you say, no, no, no. Like, you know, the government is the ultimate owner, in which case then all this stuff is fine. Hmm. I mean, like what if somebody tried to say – you know, maybe my spouse and I jointly own. We don't, but maybe mm-hmm. my spouse and I jointly owned a house, and then we'd get to decide who right. could trespass onto mm-hmm. our property. We're entering. Uh, technically, we'd be entering. Right, sorry. <laughs> <Not> trespassing. <laughs> yeah, man, using biased language. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it should be up to us to decide, according mm-hmm. to this view, uh, who enters our property, and then like maybe the move would be to try to scale that up to the nation level, where it's like the yeah. U.S. is private property jointly owned by yeah. all 400 million people they live here or something? Yeah. So again, if that's your view, then it's the end of all libertarian thought because then it's collective property and we as a people decide what happens to our country. Yeah. And so you, were, you were so far Pretty soon from- there's a centralized government yeah, deciding. Yeah. 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 So far from the libertarian way of looking at things. Again, what's very, to my mind, shows just how insincere these arguments are is that I don't know anyone who actually generalizes from this idea of this is our country, so we have the right to go and decide what happens. Obviously, this would also be totally fine in terms of limiting fertility, right? So you can't decide to have a baby on my house. If you are my kid and you say, I'm going to have a baby, then he said, well, fine. Well, if you want to have a baby, then you have to move out. You can't go and, and have a baby on my property. So similarly, then this would mean that government should have the right to go and tell people and the citizens of a country whether they can have kids. It is truly a desperate argument that you know, like is strangely influential, again, probably because there's at least a segment of libertarians who are so eager to ally with anti-immigration people that they're kind of trying to reverse engineer some way that they could agree with them. But again, you can see that they aren't, don't generalize from the principles. So I don't think even they really believe it. Okay. So the libertarian case for open borders was easy to make. I imagine the like progressive or Marxist uh, case for open borders would similarly be easy to make. Uh, At least that would be the political leaning that Mm -hmm. in, at least in my circles is stereotypically associated Mm -hmm. with advocating open borders. Yeah. So I would think particularly about the philosophical egalitarian case like you'd get from early John Rawls, which, uh, again, I, I, am, I am well aware for your philosophically 
literate viewers that there's multiple John Rawls and he modified the position or maybe claimed that it was always the, <laughs> the later position, yeah. but probably wasn't. But anyway, it comes down to the idea that whatever inequalities exist in society should only exist if they benefit the worst off group. And I say, obviously, people born in poor countries are the worst off group on earth. So the only way immigration restrictions can be justified is if somehow it was good for people like Haitians to not be able to move to the United States. And that's pretty crazy to say that it's good for them to not be able to move to the United States. It's clearly bad for them. I do know that later in political liberalism, he changed it and said, no, 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 like the group is relative to a country. But as to how in the world you get that out of the original philosophical framework, right. yeah. uh, it just seems. Yeah, to, certainly uh, if you yeah, do yeah, a veil yeah. of ignorance argument, yeah, yeah, imagine yeah, yeah, you, you don't know, you don't, you, yeah, you don't yeah. know what country you're in. So, of course, you're going to want to get insurance against that. So again, it seems more like the later versions of Rawls are just desperately trying to not bite the implications of the theory because it would mean that he'd have to hold a radical view. And John Rawls was nothing if not trying to firmly position himself as a regular mainstream American, mainstream left-wing American anyway. Right now, into, you know, when you actually start thinking about something like the Marxist view, that's one where it's harder because I think to really be a Marxist, you would have to reject a lot of the social science that I'm relying upon, hmm. right? So... I think, Marxist, I think so. I think if you really were a earnest Marxist who really bought the doctrine, then you would just say it's not true that letting in a bunch of immigrants in the first world would make them better off. Rather, it'll just bring wages in the first world down to the third world level. So this is something that I have heard from paranoid people. Totally. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is just so far against anything that actual empirical economics would predict. I mean, again, it's the kind of thing where if someone was knowledgeable and said this, I say, gee, I mean, if you have studied this for years and that's what you think, I don't think I can change your mind. It seems crazy to me. If it was a young person, that's where I say, all right, let's just back up here and stop talking about immigration. Let's just talk about how markets work. And again, yeah. what you see when you have two markets with different prices and there's a trade barrier between them and then you open it up, you don't see that both prices fall to the lower price. They go to somewhere in the middle, of course. Have you come across a theory of normative ethics that would seem to push us to favor closed borders? I mean, you mm. cover most of them in the yeah. book. I mean, there are a few oddball ones. There's ethical egoism. There's um, <laughs> communitarianism. If you consider that mm. to be a normative ethics theory, to me, yeah, maybe. yeah, to me, it's too vague to know what it even means. So. Yeah, no, I, I I love the idea under some yet to be specified definition of community. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Community run by me. That sounds great. Yeah. yeah so everybody's the, friends. The, the, kumbaya. So, sounds great. I don't know. So the, so definitely not closed borders, which I think is just an insane idea, but yeah. less than fully open. That's a different story. So the best case for that that I tell you, and I do talk about this. So there is a view that really has almost no well-known representative in academic philosophy, but mm. it's actually quite popular and sometimes called citizenism. Mm. And it just says, look, the ethical thing for a government to do is to do whatever maximizes the interests of their own citizens and the children of the current citizens of the country. That last clause solves the non-identity problem for your hardcore philosophy people, right? You know, this is... Very hard to find anyone in academic philosophy who believes this, but it's a common view, actually. I mean, it's one where I doubt anyone literally believes it, or at least very few, because if you're a halfway decent philosopher, you say, so if we could raise the income of Americans by 1% by enslaving Canada, we should do that. That seemed to be what this theory implies. Like, oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. But you know, within the realm of reason, whatever maximizes the interests of the citizens and their descendants. I mean, and that's where I say that actually 
the economic gains are so enormous and the complaints are sufficiently speculative and minor that I still very much in the interest of current citizens and their sentence of open borders. And then if you're still not convinced by that, that's where I say, all right, look, if you're still not convinced, then you should do the Gulf monarchy route, right? Which is be super welcoming to immigrants of all skill levels, but say there is a hard line distinction between citizens on citizens, and it's pretty much impossible to become a citizen. Like Kuwait, there's like a minimum 30 year wait to become a citizen of Kuwait. It's pretty much impossible to do it. But the main thing that means, yeah, you could go to Kuwait, you can go and you can live there, you can work there, but you don't get a cut of the oil money, right? Which is of course an enormous amount of money uh, for because they got a ton of oil divided by a tiny number of actual citizens. So yeah, I'd say that's the most closed or you know, the most restriction friendly view, but even that is very open compared to almost any country on earth right now. Again, I think you really do have to get to sort of the incoherent views like communitarianism where, hmm. again, I've been hearing about it for 30 years, still don't know what it really is. It's, it's more of, I don't have to believe the results of other philosophical theories because I'm a communitarian. So maybe to close, uh, you know, you could kind of paint us a little bit of a picture of like, well, what would life look like in your utopia? So imagine every country decides to throw its borders open. We fast forward 100 years. Everybody has time to be like totally productive. Our cultures have time to mix, et cetera, et cetera. What does life look like in that scenario? Yeah, so my prediction is the whole world will be highly westernized. First of all, you know, of course, there's going to be a fusion, but I think a majority of the cultural change will be in a Western direction and only very mild amounts in any of the other directions. And you know, my main reason for thinking this is just that right now there are a lot of governments in the non-Western world who are very desperately trying to repress Western influences and fighting a losing battle. So I just say that when there is free competition between what we broadly consider Western culture and like traditional Muslim culture or Confucian culture, that actually Western culture gets you know, an 80% victory, something like that. So, you know, I'm not saying that we don't have things to learn from other cultures. And so it's anything I see, like from Eastern cultures, like, you know, they're doing better in terms of, the, of family stability. And I think that's really important and you know, something that we can really appreciate that they've got going for them. But at the same time, um, in terms of ability individual to go and live a fulfilling life, I think that we've got them beat by quite a bit. And, you know, of course, it doesn't mean that everybody will be this way. It just means that will be the general cultural tenor. There's always room within Western culture for other things to be happening. We've got thriving Amish communities right now. They're rejecting what's going on in the rest of the world. Or really, if you're you know, thoughtful Amish are trying to figure out how can we accommodate this and maximize Amishness through it. So anyway, that's part of it, of course. The really big thing is that I think that we'll see almost no absolute poverty. So again, honestly, my prediction is 100 years, we'll probably see very little absolute poverty either way. But without open borders, there'll still be, say, 10 countries that are stubbornly poor, where their governments are, have such a stranglehold with society and they refuse to do anything. And probably by then they'll have nuclear weapons, so there's no way of unseating them peacefully. And what open borders will do is just deprive them of a population to tyrannize over. So I think basically I think you know, like there will be much higher overall wealth, but also uh, there'll be far fewer pockets of lingering absolute poverty. So probably in the scenario, you'll see that English becomes much more the global language. So again, but there are of course a few others that are candidates, but the main thing to understand about linguistics is that if you gradually move people from one culture to another culture, it is the one that is growing gradually that gets to keep its language and the one that is moving gradually that loses its language. Again, I'm not saying this is good or bad. It's just a reasonable prediction of what's going to happen. 
So, I mean, even now you can see that Chinese immigrants and immigrants from the Indian subcontinent, usually their kids are no longer fluent. So I think English will become, if not totally the global language, at least something approaching the global language uh, if this keeps going on. Again, of course, with pockets of other things happening as well. So there's still Quebec speaking French in Canada, despite all seeming economic incentives to stop doing that. So it can be sustained. Let's see. And then you know, the other really big things are you know, incredible innovation. Like, so we're no longer wasting most of the best minds of the planet. You know, if you just think about what was going on in China and India for most of the 20th century, there were great scientific, technological business minds in those countries that probably just lived on farms their whole lives and never were able to accomplish much of anything. Yeah, they have a great idea, and now here's the Cultural Revolution. Yeah, 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 yeah. So a great idea. Now you can go and dig with your hands uh, just to reward you for your arrogance. So, you know, in, in, in terms of you know, like what this will really mean, again, when you're getting that far in the future, it is hard to predict exactly what tech will be. I mean, if you think that we're going to yeah. cure aging the next 100 years anyway, I mean, I guess I will say like we could perhaps have the time it takes to get to the key milestones. And the most obvious milestone of own is the conquest of death, which yes. seems like it's got to come sometime in the next thousand years, as whether it's going to be 900 years or 90 years. I've got some friends who say that I'm going to live forever. And I'm like, gee, I hope you're right. That sounds really implausible <laughs> that, it, that it's going to work out for me and maybe yeah. for my kids, or my grandkids to work. But I mean, if you just think about just like a 1% chance that right now we are keeping out the person that would have cured aging, like, my God, what fools we were to have done such a thing. Brian Kaplan, the borders of this recording space will always be open for you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you very much. And let me just say, you can get the book for just twelve ninety nine on Amazon. So one click yes, away and dirt cheap. Excellent. And fun for the whole family. I'll say this is the only book I've ever had that anyone where we're five-year-olds have stolen it from their professorial parents. <laughs> so I feel like I somehow hit a formula for pleasing a much wider audience than I ever thought I could. Excellent. Yes, you must check this book out. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>